This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode, I have a guest on. I've got Josh Nichols, and he is a marriage and family therapist. He's also a CSAT in Oklahoma City. He is a co-owner of a group practice, Family Solutions. They focus on betrayal trauma, sex addiction recovery, as well as trauma and relational stuff and just a healthy approach to recovery. Also, you can find Josh. He has a YouTube channel, so you can look him up on YouTube. We've got several videos over there called Recovery TV, so you can check that out on YouTube. So welcome to the show, Josh. I'm glad to have you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I reached out to Josh because he had uh, posted on our listserv, he had posted a blog post that you wrote just like a week ago, right? Yes. That when you did it. And it was- That's why I posted it. I wrote it. Okay. On. Yeah, I'm sure it's it there a for a while. Yeah. There's quite a bit in there. Yeah. So he wrote a blog post that is on their Family Solutions website. That if you want to find the actual blog post, and I can put a link up in the show notes. But he's introducing this concept of reflection aggression. And it, it's an interesting concept. I, when, you were, when you posted it, you were saying, like, are other therapists seeing this? I definitely am in my practice. I know the therapists who work at my practice definitely see this. So I thought it'd be great to have a discussion about this because usually when people are going through the recovery process, Addicts have a lot of questions. Partners have a lot of questions. This is a great place to put some of this information out there. So initially, what you were mentioning is that reflection aggression is kind of this phenomenon that happens well into recovery, right? People have already, it's not at the beginning stages of recovery. It's not really in the middle stages of recovery, um, but it's this phenomenon that happens and it can have the potential to uh, keep partners from advancing and even probably cause some conflict in the relationship. Right. Yes. And like you said, it was something that, you know, got my wheels turning because I had so many of, um, you know, addict clients or uh, what we refer to as the unfaithful partner that would come to us at uh, well into recovery, they're working a program and they'd always ask, uh, is it possible that my partner could be gaslighting me. Mm. And it just kept happening over and over. And it wasn't like they were, you know, playing mind tricks with themselves. In fact, they often wait a while before they bring it up. But once they're kind of recognizing they're connecting that certain behavior as being real similar to gaslighting, then they're kind of itching to, to bring it up because they're like, I really think they're gaslighting me. And, and for a while, I was like, man, it really does kind of look like gaslighting a little bit. Mm. But I, in my mind, I'm like, it just can't be, <laughs> you know, it can't be gaslighting because not, not to say that that partners aren't capable of doing that. There are definitely some partners out there that uh, you come to find out that are also um, addicts themselves or have a, a number of other mental health things going on. But it's really rare, I, I feel like, or from my experience. And so in my mind, I, I was just, you know, I was really... Uh, battling that because it's like it, I, it just can't be gaslighting. It has to be something else. And as you examine it, you really do kind of see that it is something else happening to them. And it's something that, that unfaithful partners have to really be careful with and uh, make sure they're showing the 
and, and also the therapist too, uh, showing that wounded or injured spouse um, a lot of compassion for because the position they're in when they come, when this starts to happen is really difficult, mainly because they're seeing the full, the complete effect of the wound that they've uh, accrued and how deep and the depths of it. Because that, that mirror that's held up that I mentioned in the blog is very unforgiving in what it reveals. Most mirrors are unforgiving. <laughs> yes, most mirrors are anyways. Yes. So, yeah, let's talk about um, kind of this process and maybe where they see it. I, as I was reading your blog post, I thought, of several clients, right? And I, I, I can see where they're coming from, the unfaithful spouse or the addict partner, trying to name it, right? That, I mean, I think right. labels serve a purpose and once, but they only serve a certain purpose and then they're not helpful anymore, right? So we right. Can yeah. label something and it can be pretty damaging, but it also mm -hmm. can help us understand. So I get like the addict trying to understand what is this that, and for the purpose of this podcast, we'll use the he, she in terms of he being the addict, right. she being the partner. Obviously that's not all the case, but we're just going to be consistent here using it that way. And so he's trying to figure this out, right? He's had to figure out a lot of things in his own recovery, figure out the terms for it, identify it, name mm -hmm. it, try to tame it. And mm -hmm. so of course he's going to come to this, like, is this gaslighting? Like I did that. Is she doing that? So talk first, let's go into kind of like why this isn't happening at the beginning of recovery and kind of what needs to have taken place before they're going to start seeing this reflection aggression. Okay. So in the beginning of recovery, uh, the couple's in crisis mode. You know, there's basically been a, a, a mortal or life-threatening wound that's been created in the, in the partner and in the relationship. So we, we view the three entities being at play here. There's the um, each individual that makes up the relationship with the relationship being the third entity. And what I talk to partners and addicts alike about is that the addict swings his sword and cuts open the partner. And as he follows through with the, with the cut, it also gets the relationship. The relationship is standing next to the partner. So the partner and the the committed relationship share the same wound. And so there's some, been some major damage done there uh, to the partner and to the relationship. So you got, you got this crisis that they're, that they're experiencing and, and the partner is bleeding out. And mm -hmm. so before we can even work on relational healing, we need to stop the bleeding in the partner, get that wound to start closing or close it and then let it start to heal. Uh, so that's applying the right type of meds. And so they're, su they're in such a crisis of trying to get that bleeding to stop um, that they're not really able to step back and, and take a look at anything because um, that's really what reflection aggression is. It's, it's pausing and looking into a mirror to examine the damage. So I live in Oklahoma City, and one thing we have a lot here are tornadoes. And so, you know, I often relate that to my clients about, you know, if a tornado is coming, you're going to, you're going to get everybody down into the cellar and you're not, you know, you're not going to care about your cars. You may, might try to grab a couple uh, photo albums or something, but you're just going to get everybody down to safety. And then the tornado is going to pass and it's going to do its damage. And then after it passes, you're going to, then you're going to poke your head out to kind of assess what's happened. But your initial survival instinct is, is to get everyone into safety. Uh -huh. You know, and 
And so that's kind of what's happening. So the partner has, is always usually pushes back on recovery a little bit in the beginning, mainly because, you know, the, the, the injury is so deep and it hurts that he is uh, consumed by so much guilt and shame that he is going to jump through all kinds of hoops. As in, in our program, we uh, tell him that that's a normal part of the process. We want him to do that to some degree. We don't want him to do anything unreasonable. Uh, we don't want him to knock off a 7-Eleven because, mm-hmm. to, you know, to prove their love to their spouse or anything like that. But we do want him to start jumping through those hoops and, and do what they can to help with the healing of this wound. So it's not until they're you know, the, the pain has eased up and things are kind of simmering down a little bit. The addict, he can start making some momentum in his own recovery, take his eyes off his partner for a little bit, put it on himself. And he starts doing well. It starts to be a good thing. And this is the transition for him too, where he goes from, this is, I'm just doing this for her because I feel so guilty. And he starts to realize that, oh, this is also for me. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that. It's not just about her anymore or just about our marriage. This is also about me. And that's one of the best things I can do for my marriage. And so oftentimes you talk about how partners like partners are okay with that. They don't want to be in the spotlight in, in the initial phases, mm-hmm. right? They don't want to be looked at and examined and poked and prodded. Like they want the addict to do that work and to get mm-hmm. into some recovery and kind of keep that focus off of themselves. Right. There's an interesting phenomenon with partners that I don't know about how, what your experience is, but they seem to be like the strongest people you ever meet in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. they are really tough people. They're really good people. I mean, you can, you can see the appeal to want, to want to be with someone like that. Right. You know, so addicts are kind of selective in that you know right um and and it kind of fits with the dynamic you know like if they pick these really strong people that seemingly don't really need a lot of attention Mm -hmm. you know all that that's perfect for someone who's trying to keep secrets right right so so partners are able to like be very relational and pretty secure in those relationship attachments and that's great for the addict absolutely and, you know, when they become wounded, that's a, often a really new experience. You know, if you dive into their trauma, they often, you know, during a time of difficulty or where the system has been wounded in some way, they often rise to the occasion. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not having to be on bed rest. And, and I'm using that metaphorically, you know, but they're not like if uh, I think one of the examples I use in the blog is uh, getting hit by a drunk driver, mm-hmm. you know, when all they're doing is being a good driver. You know, but now they got hospital bills to pay for. They got physical therapy to go to. They're in a body cast. They got to take all these meds and there, there's so much unfairness that comes with it. Right. You know, all they want to do is go back to their jobs and uh, take care of their kids and, and take care of their husbands or, uh, or whoever they're in a committed relationship with. They just want to get back to the way things were and they just, can't do that. So we talk about like, I usually tell them on day one that you're going to be terrible at being a wounded partner. You know? Right. That's because you're so strong, you know, and, but it's time, it's time that somebody take care of them. 
you know, because often they don't, they haven't had that as an experience. You know. Right. They, they've usually been the caretaker and the one that people oh, turn yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, and I know I'm speaking kind of, you know, generalizing a lot. I know there are definitely some, some outliers there, but from our experience, most of the time, the partners are tremendously strong and, and great caretakers. It makes being wounded very difficult. Right. Well, and I also think, I mean, I think you mentioned this in the blog post that that idea that a lot of people have in relationships and particularly their romantic relationship is like, I know this person, I know what they do. I know what they don't do. I know their likes. I know their dislikes. Like I know who this is and betrayal trauma all of a sudden says, wait, there's this side that's pretty dark and pretty deep and you didn't see it or you didn't detect it. Right. And I can't remember if I addressed that in this one or a different, or if it was in the blog on transitional distrust, but there's, you know, uh, in the relationship, what we're seeing happening with the couple is that a lot of times they both have their own share of trauma, whether it be something very overt, like child abuse or sexual abuse or things like that, or something more, more subtle, like uh, emotional neglect or abandonment issues and things like that. But a lot of times they both have their, their more than their share of that. And it seems like the partner, and this is just speculative right now, but this is what I'm seeing is that the partner kind of latches on to hope in the relationship. Right. And so they find some, they take solace in that, you know, the the world was kind of crappy in a lot of ways growing up, but I met this person and and this is what we've created is wonderful Mm -hmm. and sometimes can even be utopian like, but in, in a world of that has that level of certainty involved, it usually signals to me anyways, that that's more of an illusion and one person uh, can only live there. And so the other person has to make sh- to keep that facade going, you know? And so what they do is they kind of cast out, they're not living in that same relationship. So they kind of cast down more like a holog. I refer to it as like a holographic image themselves, which is really just displaying all their good parts. Mm-hmm. And they leave their darkness separate from the relationship because if I introduce my darkness into it, it's going to dis- be disruptive. And I don't mean my darkness that I'm an addict or that I have the potential of being unfaithful. It's just more like I'm hurting, mm-hmm. not always happy. Mm-hmm. There, are frust- there are things that frustrate me. There are things I haven't healed from. There are things I want to change. And the unfaithful spouse is often afraid if they do that, that it would be too disruptive and that partner won't want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. So when a betrayal trauma happens, it reveals the true nature of the world that they're in, which is a world of uncertainty. Right. The, the hard part for them is that happens once. Like it's in one moment's time, everything was as it should be. And then in one moment's time, it all changed. I mean, it's very abrupt. And I think the brain has a, a really hard time processing that abrupt change. Right. I think that's, I hear partners a lot of times just refer to it as this blind side. Like I didn't even yes. see it coming. And, and maybe with yeah. some hindsight, they can see pieces of it, but at the time they mm-hmm. did not see that it was coming or they couldn't put the pieces together. Right. And on top of that, you know, where the addict a lot of times has, you know, they've been kind of, you know, with having the double life, they are, are pretty much aware of their dark side. Right. Um, and so 
they've been using their drug of choice to cope with it. So this happens to the partner with no anesthesia. Mm -hmm. They go through all this with no uh, even good coping mechanism, much less something, some kind of drug of choice. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's got to be a, a, just an outright overwhelming experience. Yeah. And so I think that's part of why, like, the partner doesn't really want to be in the spotlight, right? There's just this, like, I I want to hide my wound or my pain or, like, I can't, I'm, I'm embarrassed that this happened to me or um, that right. I didn't see this. Like, what are people going to think of me? And so they're happy to let the addict be the problem. Like you go to therapy, you work Mm -hmm. on this, you pick back up the pieces and make this right. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of logic to that. Right. I mean, you did this. I mean, you are holding the knife that cut me open. So there's a lot of logic to, you know, go get help. I mean, you're, you're the source of danger become not dangerous anymore. Right. (laughs) You know? And so it definitely makes sense from a logical standpoint. But you're right, like, you know, it's just, it's so overwhelming to, to see the damage that's been done. You know, it's like poking your head out of your cellar and seeing that not just your house, but the whole neighborhood has been demolished. You know, what do, we, what do you do with that? Where do you even begin? Right. You know, and they start getting glimpses of that with the reflection aggression. And what I, what I talk about in, in the blog is that it's not about keeping secrets like gaslighting is. Gaslighting is all about messing with your reality to keep a secret, but reflection aggression is more about pacing recovery. Like Mm -hmm. I'm overwhelmed, you know, like I got to kind of take, just kind of start putting one foot in front of the other. And I'm getting this mirror that is showing me this, the depths of my woundedness. And it's just, it's just too much sometimes. So just get it off of me, put it back on you for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I can I gotta start taking it in doses. And and like you said, seeing their reflection in the mirror, seeing their woundedness kind of reflected back to them, they can be pretty aggressive in pushing that away. Right, which makes sense. Like uh, if if I'm feeling overwhelmed by it, and it's and also too remembering that they see the 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 unfaithful partner is the one is holding the mirror. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it kind of automatically is like, is associated with something dangerous, mm-hmm. you know? And so, yeah, it's just, I think that natural instinct to push back, I think that, yes, that, that can, it can prevent them from advancing if it's not addressed or recognized as a very common and normal phenomenon that happens in this process. If it's, mm-hmm. if it gets chalked up to gaslighting there, it's going to be insult to injury. And um, they're probably going to, you're probably not going to see them very long if a therapist says they're gaslighting their, their partner. But if we can give them a name for it, then we give them a point of reference and a point of intervention to know how to manage it so it doesn't become, take a life of its own uh-huh. and, and become something that prevents them from recovering or become something that does cause further damage to the relationship. Right. And so what do you like, what do you tell the unfaithful spouse? Like, do you give them steps? Do you like, how do you explain to them? Like, here's kind of how you need to approach this. Yeah. So this will be uh, probably my next blog on reflection aggression. Um, In a nutshell, the the key to handling reflection aggression is compassion. Mm. You know, it's not just compassion for the the partner too. It's also the recovering addict or the unfaithful partner having compassion for himself. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, because if he doesn't, he's going to be not just if he doesn't have compassion toward her, he's he's going to be get angry with her and respond that way. Right. If he doesn't have compassion for himself, he's going to just continue to rake himself over the coals, which is going to he's going to digress in his recovery efforts. You know, so being able to lovingly and gently recognize the position that she is in and the overwhelming amount of difficulty and emotional chaos that she's undergoing, he can then learn to uh, say things and, and soften and learn how to present himself in a way that it's almost like a doctor having really good bedside manner for someone who's really suffering. You know, mm-hmm. um, There are things that we got to do. There, there, we still have to move forward, but I don't have to be a jerk about it mm-hmm. um, because I'm angry at myself or I'm angry at you or both. Right. You know, often I think sex addicts kind of have this I mean, there's been a lot written or talked about with sex addicts in terms of like, they have this timeline that they think things should move. And if the partner's still struggling or still hurting or being challenged by what happened, they're kind of like, it's time, right? Like move forward, be done. Are you saying that, that part of that may be that they haven't developed enough self-compassion? And so that's difficult to hold that for the partner. Right. Um, I don't know if you remember, I can't remember who, who coined this many years ago, but the whole, um, you know, I'm okay, you're okay grid. Yes. Yep. You know, yeah. So most of the time, and from, what, from my experience, I'm not seeing people that are operating in the, the I'm not okay, you're not okay quadrant. I mean, right. I don't think that a lot of them even come to therapy. And so they kind of find themselves bouncing around between you're okay, I'm not okay. Uh-huh. And then, you know, they get they start to see that they have some woundedness, woundedness themselves that's undeserving, whether it's from, uh, from and often it's not from the relationship, it's from other things, but it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, then they start to go, well, maybe I am okay and you're not okay. Mm-hmm. And, and anger gets directed that way. So it's trying to move into the I'm okay and you're okay quadrant. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're okay. Uh, we're hurting, we're wounded, but we, we're okay. Right. And we're going to do this. And so you, you still hold the relationship accountable for movement in that quadrant. The other two, it can be uh, hindered, I think, by the anger and the other, um, get consumed by those difficult feelings that can often be misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. Is there a part of this that like, so when the, ad, you know, the addict goes into therapy, starts this recovery process, starts to work on the self, gain traction in therapy. Is there part of this then that for the partner, it kind of feels like, wait a minute, how, how are you the one getting better? And I'm kind of over here on the side of the road in the wreckage still like, and and so is some of that aggression rooted in some of that? Like you did this to me, I'm still hurting. You really want the attention on me, but now you're better and I'm still not. Right. And so and that's something we talk about with our couples is that because uh, the, the space that is in, and, and we wrote a blog on this called Transition, uh, What is Transitional Distrust? It kind of explains this, I think, a little bit more on this. Uh, uh, but the, the space is called a, a liminal state of existence. And liminal basically just means a point in time where you're neither this nor that. It's not a fun place to be. It's a miserable right, place right. to be. That's kind of where the addict, when you think of the addict having two, or the person having two selves, the uh, the true self and then their addict self, 
the attic kind of lives out in that space and it's not fun. You know? uh -huh. So uh, that's where they put their darkness basically. And, and they use uh, a drug of choice to cope with being in that space. And they're stuck out there. They're like an astronaut without a ship, without a ship, you're just floating, you know? And when this, when the discovery of the infidelity happens, it does cast out the, uh, the partner into that space as well, but it knocks loose the, the attic. So for the first time, uh, and you probably experienced this too, that the attic kind of feels a sense of relief. They don't have to keep a secret anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, they might feel some forward movement in their life for the first time in a long time. Meanwhile, their partner just entered it, like I said, all at once, you know, with no anesthesia. And yeah, there's a, you know, there's going to be a lot of how dare yous through this process. Mm -hmm. um, just, it's completely justifiable and understandable. What the partner doesn't have the right to do is hurt somebody in, in return. They're not intentionally going to do that, but you know, it's very rare that they do that often or do it in a way that's got to be like, you know, where it's physical and, and it has to be addressed. Mm -hmm. But I think in a lot of ways, it, when it does happen, it actually gives the, uh, the addict in recovery an opportunity to show their partner that they, ha they are becoming a person of integrity and a person of boundaries. I can show you love and concern and compassion at the same time that I set a boundary with you that says that you can't do that to me, mm -hmm. you know, and it really, it puts that double bind in place with the partner that goes, okay, well, you know, the rule I've operated under is that shitty people do shitty things and you're not really acting like a shitty person right now, but this shitty thing happened. Right. So how do I reconcile that? When I'm working with the addicts on that, I'm, I'm constantly encouraging them to keep putting out information that's confusing like mm -hmm. that so that we can, so the brain can start changing the meaning of what things are, or what it isn't. You know? Right. And, and I think helping addicts understand that of course their recovery is going to be tested by the partner, right? Like exactly. she has to be trust what, what you say the reality is. Absolutely. It, it has to be it. It mm -hmm. would, I would worry about her if she didn't do that. Right. And let me clarify something too, because of what I said earlier is that when I say we're encouraging constantly putting out stuff that's confusing, I'm not talking about gaslighting. And if, and if someone goes, uh, if they're reading the reflection aggression blog, they should just go ahead and read the transitional distrust blog. Cause I do another side-by-side -side chart with behavior that looks like gaslighting. It will feel the same and look the same. And mm -hmm. what we're, uh, working out with the addicts is that it's still going to feel the same, but then it looks different. So they're still not going to really trust it right? Uh, because it's different, but the, the feeling still comes there because their brain is protecting them and they're not going to trust anything different either. Right. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, I will explain sometimes to partners, like, you know, let's say that you were just doing your thing. You stepped off the street and a bus came out of nowhere and ran over you every time you're walking, you're going to be watching for the bus because you didn't see it the first time. Right. And so you're going to be looking for the bus everywhere yeah. you go because you don't want to get hit by that again. Right. Or you, uh, or there's a yellow vehicle you catch out of the corner of your eye and it startles you. Right. I mean, there's a historian I heard once say that history never repeats itself, but it often rhymes. Right. Yes. I think that was Mark Twain. 
Was it? Okay. I, so. I don't know who, who initially coined it. I, I heard it come from a historian. So yeah, but yeah. And so, I mean, that's a lot of what's going on with the brain is that it, it just, if it looks familiar, you know, it's right. going to start throwing up red flags. Right. And, and there's going to be an overreaction to that because of what already happened. Exactly. And when you're talking about like that, it's not gaslighting, it might look like gaslighting. It may feel even like gaslighting. One of the main differences, and you talk about this in your blog post, is that the intent is not the same in, in gaslighting. That intent is to deceive and to kind of throw them off the track. And with reflection aggression, the intent is not deception or secrecy or any of those things. Right. Yeah. So reflection aggression, the intent really is about pacing, healing and pacing recovery. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, it all goes back to um, just the feeling overwhelmed by the amount of woundedness they they start learning and experiencing uh, when they are looking at it and then the depths of it. Right. And so it's just, It's more about just pacing their recovery and they don't really have the words for it. You know, they just have the the emotion for it. If we can, as therapists, you know, and and anybody working in the recovery field, if we can start giving them the words for it, you know, it actually can help the the brain start to calm itself down a little bit Mm -hmm. and uh, be a better self-regulator. Right. I have you heard of the book? It's a pretty, I mean, it may be like 30, 20, 20 or 30 years old called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. Oh, no, I haven't heard that. So he, like, he's a security expert. And in the book, right, he talks about how our gut is kind of this, it detects fear. And that's really a gift that we have. But based on experiences that happen to us or whatever, we can overuse that fear. And then it's not really useful to us because we're afraid of everything or we're afraid of nothing right and kind of finding that balance Mm -hmm. and it was reminding me when you were talking about kind of pacing the recovery um he shares a lot of stories in the book kind of talking about like maybe it was a rape survivor or you know the victim of a violent crime and they want to know like how do i prevent this from happening right obviously Mm -hmm. they're not to blame they were a victim They did nothing to make themselves get raped or to be a victim of a violent crime, but they're trying to heal. Right. And they want to know like, what didn't I know? And what can I know that might make me feel a little bit safer and, and keep going Mm -hmm. forward. And he will walk them through. And a lot of that, right. was like denying their own intuition or just kind of like talking themselves out of maybe what their body and their gut was saying. And I think oftentimes partners where we work, there's a lot of partners who have been blamed for what happened or for not knowing or whatever it is. And so I I find sometimes partners are really skittish because they can't take that like one more person saying, well, you should Mm -hmm. have, or why didn't you? Mm -hmm. But there, I think there comes a time in which if the pacing is correct, they are saying like, okay, what do I, what do I need to know? What do I need to heal? What can I see? that allows me to move at this, not by his pace or the therapist's pace, but like mm-hmm. at my pace. Great. And, you're, and I'm glad you, you brought that up too, when you said that, you know, how others might respond to it can also make it difficult. You know, addressing the cultural challenges is really important in this, uh, on both sides of it to Because uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, our culture is, is ran by human beings. So it's a very imperfect 
world, uh, the the rules that we operate under, the meaning that we assign to certain things are often very flawed. I think if you listen to anything Esther Perel does, that will clue you into that. But um, Pauline Boss, uh, who does a lot of work and coined uh, the concept of ambiguous loss, mm-hmm. you know, this is, a, this is one of those types of losses in which ambiguous loss being something that, you know, you can't see it or touch it, but it's gone. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, and the people around us don't know really how to respond to that very well. A, a good example of that would be like a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. You know, if people have a miscarriage and then we hear th- people say things like, well, people have miscarriages all the time. Mm-hmm. Or they'll say, uh, well, you know, that's just the body's way of protecting uh, a baby that was itself aborted, basically, because uh, the baby was probably deformed in some way and wasn't going to have any kind of life. And then they can even get crazier with the thoughts saying like, hey, well, you want to you wanna come over and hold my baby? You know, it's just, uh, I think, you know, one thing that we heard uh, was, uh, well, at least you have your two boys. Mm. You know, I mean, and, and they're all well-meaning, you know? I mean, it's not like anybody's trying to say hurtful things, but they're, uh, the ambiguity of that loss is, so challenging to the people around us that they often will say things or do things that are hurtful or just, or at minimum, just unhelpful. And so I was going to say going along with your mirror analogy, like I think for a lot of people, maybe they haven't had to have a mirror held up in their life. (laughs) And so you're going through this unambiguous or this ambiguous loss. They don't have context to deal with that, right? No mirror has been held up for them. And so they're just, trying yep. to throw something out there that, you know, maybe right. makes them feel better or they, yep. they're trying, but it's not really landing. Right. And on that front, you know, it likely is holding a mirror up to them and they're uncomfortable with it too. I don't, I would not say it's reflection aggression because they're often not aggressive in it. Right. right. Uh, but definitely uncomfortable uh-huh. facing ambiguous, the, the ambiguous loss that other people go through. If you think about how much, it's even more challenging for the partners because now they're just so lonely in it. Right. You know, no one gets it. Mm-hmm. You know, often, you know, even the therapist doesn't really get it. You right. know, and what I've talked about is like, you know, that tinge of loneliness that will consume you if, um, if you let it, mm-hmm. you know, no one will, that's just the reality of no one's going to get it. Like you get it. Even, other partners in your group, they're going to get it more than most people, but um, they don't know what it's like for you specifically because they're not you. Right. But the, the piece that I try to encourage them with is that if you do have a group of people, this is why groups are so important. I believe they're the people that get it the most and they're all dealing with the feeling of no one gets it. Mm-hmm. Then that's a common denominator that you can really connect on is that that loneliness that comes with it that's something that everybody can relate to to some degree absolutely anything you want to add before we wrap up no i you know i appreciate you uh taking the time out to talk about a concept that is is, i feel like is very important uh, Mm -hmm. to get to get out there because i think we do need to give a name to this phenomenon and make sure we're not misconstruing it as gaslighting. Um, it right. is not uh, for any partner listening. It is not gaslighting. It does need to be addressed and, and worked through with your therapist, but uh, it is definitely not gaslighting. And, and if, if it's brought up as that, 
now you have another term that you can refer to it as. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for thinking this through and giving us the wording for it. I do want to be part of getting that wording out there so that partners and healing addicts have something to help them understand what this is and move through it. Again, for listeners, Josh has a YouTube channel, Recovery TV. I'm guessing, do you have an episode on this or on the transitional trust? We do have one on transitional distrust, not on reflection aggression yet. Okay. Um, the URL for that, by the way, is uh, once you type in youtube.com, it's uh, Recovery TV, the number four in the letter U. And that'll take awesome. you right to our page. Okay. I'll put that in the show notes too. Thank you so much, Josh, for your time. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till you're finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.